This is episode number 11, How to Find the Courage to Tell Your Story, with Anne Heffron. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. She said it was hard. 30 years of hard work, massive credit card debt, yet the book was still not finished. She said, my mom died before she could finish her book. I am not going to die before I finish mine. Without further ado, please welcome Anne Heffron. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to speak with someone, your background and your experience. And what I figured the best way we can start this off is by you telling us about your upbringing, sharing why you were adopted, the type of environment that you were brought in as a kid and as someone with an adoptive family, and then we can transition from there. Okay. Did you want me to just start? Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny is that I was fine until you asked me that question. And then all of a sudden I got teary. And I think that that it's one of the powers of the adoption story is that, um, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about how much I love my parents, but that I also touched on grief. It's just always there. Uh, so it was interesting to, to feel that, that it's, even though, I think I've come to terms with um, being adopted in my story that that fundamental both joy and sadness are hand in hand. But, um, but my, the, my story is that um, I was, um, my birth mother was a student and she went to a party and um, got pregnant and um, her family, uh, she took some time off of school. She was at NYU. She took some time off of school. And um, she had me. And then I was somewhere for 10 weeks. And then my parents adopted me. And um, they were the right parents for me. It was a good match. Um, they also adopted two boys. Uh, my parents had no idea about any kind of side effects of adoption. And we, were, we grew up feeling that we were their children, but uh, our family also felt deeply troubled. Um, one of my brothers uh, had been a drug baby. We didn't really know what that meant or what that was. And my other brother, uh, he came to us when he was two and a half. His mom had dropped him off at the... Um, adoption agency on his second birthday and he's a mixed race so uh, there was that and um, I, I when I look back now I see that if my if we had come with some kind of owner's manual you know when you get a bike even it comes with a little manual or I, mean, I bought a space heater the other day that has a 20 page manual <laughs> now, now all I came with was, was a fake birth certificate and 
I think if my if my parents had known, um, we could have had help immediately. I think as a family, we should have been in counseling, and I think individually, we should have been in counseling. So I think when people adopt, there should also be a budget for um, adoption competent therapists, uh, a lifelong <laughs> budget for everyone in the family. Um, but because what ended up happening is I think all of us, my parents and me and my two brothers, we took the troubles that we had in our family personally. Like it was our fault um, when it was adoption, mostly. Um, and so I um, found my birth mother when I was uh, younger, um, probably I, I started searching um, I started searching because my life was going off track. I I was able to look fairly normal until I left for college, and then things started to fall apart. I kept dropping out of college, and you know I sort of look like the girl next door, and I act like the girl next door, and so it was confusing to people, my parents and me and my friends, as to like what was my problem. Um, so I, I and I didn't. I never said, oh, I'm having problems because I'm adopted. I went to therapists and, you know, trying to figure out what the problem is. But none of them knew about adoption, so none of them picked up on maybe that was, maybe the the, the trauma from relinquishment was the problem. But um, I found my birth mother, and then it, uh, um, I didn't have contact with her until my daughter was a little girl, and my birth mother didn't want contact. Um, so, so I wrote all about it in, um, my memoir, you don't look adopted. So you can read it there. Cause it's so, sort of boring for me to tell it. Cause I've lived in, what was, <laughs> but, go ahead. What would, briefly, if you could briefly share, what was the experience like when you met your mother? So I'm assuming that it wasn't a closed adoption. Is that right? No, it was a closed adoption. Okay. And, and, and so I, um, they had, on my paperwork, uh, they had mistakenly on one of the papers left in my original birth name. And so my parents, um, we didn't talk a lot about adoption in the family. It was, I mean, I always knew that if I were to talk about it, my mom was going to get really uncomfortable because uh, she wanted to be our mom 100%. Um, but so I kind of, I, I would say I found the name and they would say, oh yeah, we knew that was there. I guess we forgot about it. Um, but when I, I contacted my birth mother through a search agency and she wrote back and said I had the wrong person. Um, actually, no, that's not, that's not what happened. I called her and she said I had the wrong person. Mm. And then uh, years and years later, I wrote to her. It took, it just took so many years to get the story out of her. Um, and, um, she, she died, so I never met her, but I understand now that the, the shame, her, her shame was so great. And I did meet her three children that she had once she got married. And one of them told me that my birth mother's favorite animal was the turtle. <laughs> that made so much sense to me because I think she's a turtle. You know, like you, you have a baby and you give it up. So you just build a shell and you stick your head in it. And mm -hmm. that's how survive. Were you able to reconnect with anyone else within your family? 
Um, I rec- I connected with the three siblings um, that uh, was interesting. It's uh, um, I, I, they it was complicated. Um, there's I have a, a half sister whose name is Anna, which is a complete coincidence. My name's Anne, and she's a writer, and I'm a writer. And actually, she wrote a book. Um, she writes for young adults, and she wrote a book before she knew about me about um, a, a, a girl who had um, a twin she didn't know about who was trying to kill her. <laughs> mm. and, and Anna did know that she had a sister out there, but her mother, because her mother told them at one point, uh, if someone called Anne, uh, said, calls you and says, she's my daughter, she's lying. <laughs> so, and the family didn't question her. They, but so they all kind of knew. And I guess when my birth mother was dying, my half sister said to her, um, if you had a daughter, I want you to know that it's okay. Um, but my birth mother was in a coma. But my half-sister told me she said that. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because I had a similar experience when I was growing up here in the States. When I first came here, I want to say it was primarily due to my um, inability to speak English. Well, at the time, my uh, my parents, essentially, I was making calls from our landline to Russia to connect with my sister and everyone else there. And there was a day when um, essentially I was talking to my parents, my adoptive parents, and we were, talk- we were talking about the fact how, you know, we should look at different ways to communicate. And they were proposing the idea of, you know, Skype and other ways. And I had entirely misunderstood that message. What I had thought was, you know, I was um, some sort of burden or something like that. So I had stopped calling my mm. sister. So, you know, when you had said that after so many years, after the first phone call to the letter, it took so many years to reconnect, I can relate to that pain because I went through that. I had stopped calling my sister for six years, six mm. years, no contact. And when I reconnected with her, she said the same, you know, she was like, I, I'm glad we're able to do this. Um, and I just explained that, you know, it was an error on my end. It was something that I 100% misunderstood. And, you know, it turned that misunderstanding turned into six years of no contact. And it was so abrupt, um, you know, because the conversations before it was weekly or so. So they were able to stay in touch with me and my progress. And then all of a sudden, boom no contact for six years. So I can, I can somewhat relate to what you may have experienced when you got in touch with them the second and third time. It's, um, it's a journey, but at the same time, I'm sure you might be as well. You're glad that it finally happened. Yeah. You know, and so I, it's, I just met my birth father, um, a couple of maybe now a couple of months ago and, and what I've learned overall about the whole reunion, I mean, after I met him, I called my dad and I said, Dad, I just want to tell you I'm glad you're my dad. And he said, that's funny. Your brother did the same thing when he met his birth father. <laughs> and because I, I felt I felt like I betrayed. It was so complicated. You know, I was 
it's a big check mark to, uh-huh. to meet your birth family. You know, it's like it just hovers there if you haven't met them. It's this empty box that you need to check. But I I have lived in fantasy for so much of my life that to have that, to meet an actual person, it's almost too much for my brain because um, there's no, there's nothing to compare it to, right? You don't meet a stranger and have to think at the same time, okay, this actually, this stranger made me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I what I got out of reunion was that I I would I think every adoptee should be able to to meet everyone that's connected with them and I think that I wish I could write an etiquette book for the people who are related to adoptees and tell them let them know what it what it does to an adoptee's brain when they refuse contact or reject or are um not kind because I've heard from a lot of adoptees where they find someone um, and their refused contact and that, that double rejection is not good for a person's soul. Mm-hmm. And so I think a basic etiquette book, you know, it's, it's just how to be kind to a person really. And I, I find that it's a little odd that I don't have contact with my, my the siblings of my birth mother anymore. And that I don't, have contact with my birth father because his wife doesn't like it. Um, but the miracle is, is that my birth father's brother, my uncle has just taken me in and he behaved in ways. Uh, he flew me to Montana to meet him and his family. He flew me and my daughter to Montana to meet him and his family. He kept me at his house. He made sure there was food that I liked that is incredibly healing because it it tells my brain that I matter. Mm -hmm. And so it's still difficult to have that relationship. You know, I went there last time and they were talking about, well, we want you to come here for Thanksgiving and it starts getting political, right? They say, you know, we're going to tell your father that you're going to be here. And if his wife says that he can't go, well, that's too bad because you're here. And I don't really want to be part of, family drama because I have my own family and you know, I don't need double family. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I don't want to go there for Thanksgiving because it's not my history, you know? So, so actually this Thanksgiving, I didn't go anywhere because my own family has changed because my mom died. And so it's kind of scattered. So that history is not the same. We don't go to my grandparents' house anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to go to friend's house right now you know i don't i don't want to make my history and i don't want to start a new one with a new family so i'm in this gray area right now of of okay now i know i have to claim my own family but but memories and traditions run strong and um i don't sort of i don't mind right now living in the past and thinking this is what thanksgiving was and I'm not sure that I want to, I'm not ready yet to make a new set of, I'm not ready to let go of my childhood, I guess. Make new traditions. I, no, it makes perfect sense. I think yeah. there's something what, what you're saying, it will just take time because, yeah. and it's needed. You know, I think it's needed to heal and potentially rediscover some parts of yourself, which you may not have known before. I've 
actually gone through a similar experience. Once again, my grandfather passed away last year. And before that, every Christmas and some Thanksgivings and other holidays, not other holidays, primarily those two, we would meet at his place. You know, for the past 10 or 11 years, we used to do that. And when he passed away, my mom um, had said, you know, we have to, let's create something new. And that's that's where I think with, with things like that, when you have been doing it for so many years and you have built up, just like you said, so many memories, everlasting memories, where you really do just need time to process everything. Because just like you said, once you go there, if even if you go to the same place, there's still going to be a part that's missing. Exactly. And part of what I've learned since writing my book and, and really admitting how much um, being adopted has affected my body, I've realized how much rest I need like, or how much even time I need. And this would have helped me when I was in elementary school and junior high and high school. I, I think that I look at being adopted is every day I'm running a marathon that other people aren't. And so I have a certain level of fatigue in my body and mind that, that a lot of people don't have. And so even something as simple as starting a new tradition for Thanksgiving is I've already run a marathon and I'm tired. And so it is going to, what you said about healing is so smart. It's just, it's going to take me more time than mm -hmm. it might most people because I need to I look at my days now and I've finally created a life that's comfortable for me and what that looks like is when I wake up I have hours just to go for a walk and take pictures and I really need that because I need to be in my body and I need to be in my body looking at the world but not having to explain myself to anybody Absolutely. and if, yeah I found that that I can live this way Yesterday, I was walking by the ocean, and I was so happy. I was just thanking everything I walked by because I finally figured it out. Like I finally figured out how to live in this body in a way that um, doesn't feel like I'm re-traumatizing it every day. And so that means I have to be really careful who I hang out with, really careful about what I do with my time, really careful about not – re-traumatizing myself by going out and spending money I don't have or eating sugar or drinking alcohol or over-exercising. Um, I think I just went on a tangent, but somehow it feels important. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's important to do that. Good for you. I applaud you for making those changes and realizing the things that you have. I think you know gratitude is especially important at the point of your life to just give back and really just cherish a lot of the moments that you've had. Truly. I think it's because there's, I think that there was, you know, when I, when I came out of the fog of being adopted, there was heartbreak and fury and a lot of feelings. And the irony is, is that I've come full circle and now I'm where everyone wanted me to be in the first place, which is grateful for being adopted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I had to have a full blown tank uh, just anger attack and sad attack before I could say, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful. Yep. I want to jump back briefly to your work. Uh, for those who may not know that much about it, could you tell them why it is that you wrote this book 
And the other point that I would like you to touch on is why is it important for other people to tell their story? Um, so the, the book started when I started to come out of the fog. I woke up one morning and I had all of a sudden I just had this feeling of what it must have been like to have been born and to not go to my birth mother. <clears throat> and I didn't usually have those kind of thoughts. And normally if I had had that thought, I would have shut it down. But instead, I let myself actually imagine what it would feel like. And I felt the shock of what had happened to my nervous system when I was a child. And, and I imagined uh, what, it, what it did. I let myself feel it. And that was the start of everything because then I couldn't go back. And so I, I, I had those feelings and I thought, okay, well, what's the next most radical thing you could do? So now you've done this. And I thought, okay, the, the most radical thing I could do is to write this down. So instead of writing it down, like I'd been trained to write it in traditional essay form, I wrote it like a little children's story. I got out a bunch of note cards and I wrote each scene like a children's book with stick figures and um, just a few words. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it makes sense now that I look back on it because I was processing a story that I didn't have words for and that it comes from a part of my brain, the limbic brain, that's not dealing with language, it's dealing with pictures. So writing the pictures was helpful. So I wrote this story that I called, um, I think it's called Baby Momo, I forget. I put it on um, YouTube as part of it. But <clears throat> so I wrote this little story and it felt like, it, it felt so subversive that I had done this. And then I put it away and then months later I went to a writing retreat and the woman had told me that, um, I should go to this retreat because she would, she's the one that could help me figure out how to write my story. Cause I'd been trying for 30 years to write a book and I couldn't do it. And so I gave her all my money basically. And I go to this writing retreat and just like everybody else, she can't help me. She's, but we're supposed to read something that we wrote at the writing retreat and everybody's reading their stuff and they're crying cause you know, they're in touch with their emotions. And I was like, Oh brother. And so, uh, I'm going to, you know what, I'm just going to read them this stupid children's story that I wrote because I'm just going to change it up. And so I, I pulled out my, my flashcards because I brought them in my backpack and I, and I started reading the story and much to my shock, people were, the reaction was extreme and people were crying. The, the leader had, it was just this thing. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is actually I had just because I had cut off, I had let myself feel briefly. And then I went, had gone back to the place of, okay, this story doesn't really matter. Right. Cause an adoptee were asked to please just suck it up. And I call it camp, suck it up. Right? <sighs> just, just, just live your life and don't have a fit about it. And the author of this book, the help, which is really a beautiful book was there. And she said to me, if you ever want a place to go to write your book, you can have my New York apartment for a few weeks. And I told her, you know, thank you, but I, I've already used up all my money to be here. And then I went back home and um, I got fired for throwing a pen at a student. My body was just having a tantrum. You know, my body was 
going to get me to write this book, <laughs> no matter whether I want to write it or not. Because I swear I didn't throw that pen and cry in front of the class and say the F word. Someone else made me do that. It was wild. Um, so I got fired. And then I just thought, you know what? My mom died before she finished her book. I, I am not going to die before I, I finish this book. So I got a bunch of credit cards. And I... Um, I, and I got a two-week writing retreat in Martha's Vineyard. So I figured, okay, I'll have two weeks in the New York apartment and two weeks in Martha's Vineyard. I have a month. I'll write the book in a month. And I gave up my apartment. I packed up everything. Um, and, I, and I left and I called the trip writer die because I said, I'm not coming back till I write this book. Because I thought, if I, I'll put myself in a corner and this way I'll have to write it. And I was in New York for two weeks and then... I um, went to Martha's Vineyard and I, I couldn't do it. I, the story was not coming out. I was writing on the surface, um, just like I'd written all my life, um, just like I'd been told that I'd written in graduate school. And I was heartbroken because my one hope was that I could write a book. And my one of the reasons I hadn't really tried to write it was because if I walked around with the hope that I, with the thought that I had a book inside of me, it was better than if I had tried and realized I didn't even have that. Mm -hmm. Then I would have nothing. So I, I, I texted my friend and I said, I can't do it. I can't write. I don't have any. I don't. And I wrote all the reasons why I couldn't do it. And he wrote back and he said, That's your voice. And that's when everything blew up for me because I realized. This voice, this it's the voice I'm speaking to you now. It's my true voice. But before, I have been I have been editing my voice since day one. So, you know, like, trying to figure out who do my parents want me to be? How do I survive? Not knowing I was doing that, but but that's what I was doing. And so all of a sudden, I understood how to tell my story I just I went into my soul and I talked from that place and then um I the the woman Kitty the one who um had the apartment in New York uh, she gave me another another I was there I was away for 93 days <laughs> would never leave funny how things work out right I know it's this miracle you know I'm in this what like 10 million dollar brownstone you know and I've got I'm living on credit I mean it was crazy and um and it was great so at 93 days I, I I tell other people who are writing about adoption in particular it's really hard to know when to finish because you're still living your life so it's very very helpful to have um a set amount of time so 93 days I was done because I was done and then um the miracle was that on the 93rd day um, I did the I did DNA testing while I was in New York. Um, I never thought I would find my birth father. I, I didn't. I just didn't. No one would talk to me about him. There were so few clues. Um, but on the um, while I was there, the last week I got the results back, and my daughter happened to be there, and I found my uncle, um, who's my birth father's brother, and he talked to me, and he told me. And so I, and when I was flying from New York back to California, I landed in Chicago and I opened up my email and someone had written to me and sent me a photograph of my birth father. 
And none of that would have happened if I hadn't risked everything to tell my story. And so I, I that's why I have this vision of I want to create um, a, a library for adoptees where it's all books by adopted people. Because I think that if every adopted person sit, has permission to sit down and write his or her story, that that should be part of the adoption package. Mm-hmm. Right? Because other people come with the stories of their birth or their childhood and but adoptees need need to create their own story and it's i don't think it's enough to have it in your head because thoughts in your head go round and round yes but when you write it out it's linear um and it's like a path it's like you're walking from point a to point b and you can actually get somewhere so that's my now that i've written my book i am i spend my i'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to get everyone else to write theirs i started this this small group on Facebook. I have a few more spaces, actually, if anyone's interested. I did it for the smallest amount of money I could, but um, I, I created this group where people could have a phone conversation with me once a month, but they would have a group of people who were committed to finishing their book in a year. Because I thought, and it's not just for adoptees, it's for everybody, but I thought, how do you create, you have to create pressure and community Right. And and guidance. And so those were the three things that I needed. So that's what I'm trying to give to other people. A couple of things. Things. Yeah. A couple of things from what you just said. So first question I would have is, how did you how do you find the courage? So for anyone who is listening and maybe interested in putting their story, how do you find the courage to do this, to finally say, you know, what, what is the process? Take us briefly through what you went I'm assuming it wasn't as spontaneous as you waking up one morning and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to make this happen because it sounds like it was a, it was a journey. It was a process that took time and, and needed to, how can others follow a similar or a different route to getting their story out there and understanding who they are and what they want to be? It's a great question, and that's the key. And it's like, what when you were nine, what gave you the courage to go to the orphanage? I think for me, it was the fact, it was a compilation of experiences. I think it was a compilation of experiences ahead to that date. And a lot of those experiences continued, they continually forced me to change. They forced me to find other ways to create the better day. So I think when I was nine, it was almost as if I had enough of the past and I needed something in my life that would completely change everything I had at the time. So one of the biggest changes at that time was my, my parents, my family, essentially giving up their rights and in a way signing myself over to the government and saying this is how my life needs to be at that moment that's so beautifully said and it's exactly the same for me it's like i i had i was i i had had enough of the life that i was living and i desperately needed a change and what's interesting now when i look back is i look at 
I mean, I went to graduate school for creative writing. I've been trying to write this thing my whole life, but I didn't feel that I, I didn't know that an adopt, I didn't know that writing about my adoption was a valid thing because I'd been asked not to talk about it essentially, not even directly asked. It would have been easier, I think, to rebel against being directly asked. Uh But, but the idea was it's, it's just something, could you please just not make a big deal about it? And I had no idea that it had that kind of effect on me. And I think that, so for other people, what I what I I have this exercise that I do I teach these write or die classes and I look at I, I can see stories in people like I can see I can already see your book just from talking to you and so I'm really good at figuring out okay what's in your way and how do we get you to examine what's in your way in a way that doesn't re-traumatize you and I think that the biggest I mean, I found courage because I was petrified, really. It, you know, it's like there's – I forget one of the Indiana Jones movies where Indiana is he, – he, he, he's stuck on the edge of a cliff. Mm-hmm. And the only Remember way that. He's, right? He has to step forward in the bridge forms. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was like that the writing of the book i mean everything was in my life was failing i couldn't stay married i couldn't stay in a job i my daughter had left for college i couldn't make money and you know it's a miracle i'm not a drunk you know if i if i liked alcohol it would have been really easy just to turn to alcohol or drugs and numb out but fortunately that stuff doesn't work for me so i was just left with pain and so i was trying to figure out how do I not feel pain anymore and I I had spent I was a teacher teaching writing you know I'm telling everybody else to change their lives by writing but but what I needed to write about was so close to my face I couldn't even see it Um, and so I I have realized that as an adopted person, I mean, I'm I am inherently a people pleaser because that is how I survived. But what I have learned is the best way for me to not survive but to flourish is to realize that if I close my eyes, there is nobody else in the world, and that the most sacred relationship I have is the relationship with the adult me and the child me, and the child me needs special care because she didn't get what she needed which is true not just for adoptees but for actually most people. And I realized that this is my job. You know, before people would ask me, what's your job? And I would say, well, I do this and this and this. But now I just point to my body. Mm-hmm. And this, this, I am my own full-time job. And other people may be able to just take their body and mind for granted but because I have a brain that was created in trauma, I I require extra work. And now that I am a grown-up, I can give myself permission uh, to do that. It's just that that took a lot of courage because it doesn't go with the standard. You know, I'm supposed mm-hmm. to say, oh, I work in high tech and I'm going to buy a car and I'm going to have a house and, and talk about family. Yep. Right. All that stuff. Right. But you can't. But I, I'd be skipping I am my own exclamation point, you know, like help (laughs) my own body and brain. And so maybe in the next life, I'll, I'll work in Palo Alto and I'll drive a Tesla. (laughs) 
American dream <laughs> to fit the norms, right? To fit the norms, but I am I have to draw I had to drop the idea that normal was going to work for me because it's I I'm not even close to that. Thank God. <laughs> Based on your experience of teaching others and having this group, what would you say are the biggest barriers that people face? during this process of telling their story? So the first one is they don't think that their story is actually of value or that they have an audience. And that, how, do you, how do you break that? So I have them do an exercise where I call it the five minutes to the ear of God. And it doesn't, I don't mean God, God. I just mean that someone that's not you, that's bigger than you, that just loves you. And so what I, the first thing I do um, is I have people pretend that they just learned they have five minutes left to live. And if you were lying there and you, and you just found that out, I mean, truly, if you sit and think about it, it's, it's shocking, right? Because you thought you were going to go to the movies tonight and you <laughs> have five minutes left. And, but you have the sweetest ear and it doesn't have a mouth because a mouth would talk back. It's just an ear. What would you say to that ear? And I think if you can access that voice, and generally in my writing classes, it's the first exercise I have people do. They don't even know each other. They write it, and then they, they, a lot of them cry when they read it out loud because they've tapped into this place of my life matters, mm -hmm. and I am listening to myself. And it's that voice that you have to find, but it's right there. Vulnerability sounds like a key aspect in that. Absolutely. It's this – it's – it's, it's, it's <clears throat> what I've seen over and over again is that what a person needs most to survive, most to thrive, I think, is adequate mirroring from the mother. And what that means is that w when you're born, you, you look into the mother's eyes and the mother, you see yourself in your mother's eyes. And at that point, you don't know that you're separate from the mother, right? So that's home planet. And gradually you learn to separate from it, but you keep looking at her to make sure you're okay. And she mirrors back to you, you are loved and you are okay. And you gradually get stronger and stronger until you can kind of float off and, and do it for yourself. But adopted people or people who grew up in alcoholic homes or abusive homes don't have that. And mm -hmm. so the, the miracle that I found is that finally I actually have the tools to mirror myself. And the greatest thing is I, I'm starting to do these um, healing adoptee retreats with a therapist. Her name's Pam Cordano. Because what I found with Pam is that she mirrors me in the way that I've been looking for my whole life. She's adopted. We, we run the same kind of joyful hyper energy that um, I didn't, that wasn't mirrored back to me when I was growing up. Uh-huh. So I have someone who understands me, an adopted person, and also who has a similar way of being in the world. So I, I, we decided to create these retreats because what we saw is if you could take people, they will heal in community. Like it's, you, you heal so much faster if you're with a group of people who think like you do and who um, understand you. Interesting. Yeah, I 100% I agree with that because – you know, one of the things that we've been doing is actually building it the same exact way. In fact, we have an event that'll be coming up in June 
June 23rd or 24th. And the whole theme of the event, well, first of all, it's called Hear Me Now. Mm. And the whole theme of the event is to allow people to discover themselves through discovering their story. I love that. I want to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so, you know, you just spot on with everything you're saying as far as how to build this community, how it all needs to work. Because when I was first starting this concept, you know, I, I probably went to hundreds, hundreds of adoption agencies, um, different homes where people are uh, fostered and things like that. And, you know, I would speak to every single person. I would speak to the staff. I would speak to some kids that I was able to and really try and understand what is it that drives you? What wakes you up in the morning and says, I want to do this? And once again, you bring up another interesting point regarding criticism. Criticism actually is one of the biggest factors why people stop pursuing who they are at heart. When you are faced with other people's opinions and perspectives of how you should live your life, it's very difficult for you to break away from that unless you have a community of like-minded people who will support you throughout your journey. So you can always turn back to them and say, hey, I'm trying to do this, but X, Y, and Z is preventing me from it. How can I do this? So what you guys are doing, I think that's a phenomenal idea. I think that is something has the potential to work and work very well. So, you know, I applaud you guys for doing it and just continue on and don't stop. Yeah, thanks. We're getting really great. Um, I think they're, they're filling up really quickly because there's a need. I think there was a need in the adoption community in the last few years as the baby boomers came into their voice to express how much adoption or relinquishment affects people and, and to talk about the pain. And now the new wave, I think, the wave that you're on and the wave that I'm on is, okay, but now what do you do? How do you make the best of it? Yes. So, so it's true that it's true that it's traumatic and it's true that our brains and bodies are different, but how can we have the best life possible with the skills that we have? I love that because one of the things that I think we failed to do is we failed – we. We don't recognize the people that are experiencing the issues right now. Like, you know, you and myself and other people are doing it now. But before, I think it was much more just research based. You know, here's an article. Here's a study from India or China that describes the adoption process. It gives some pointers towards how adoption needs to be refined. But I, what I've always felt is that it's great to have that information. It's great to know the statistics, but now what? And it's not necessarily yeah. now what, but it's like, how do you impact the people that are forced to live with it? It almost seems that the, the studies and the research are focusing on the future with the past information, but then there is that chunk that's missing in between. You have the past and you got the, the future, but what about the present? What about yeah, all the people that are going through it now? Yeah, how, so how do you smart. cope with that? Yeah, it's so smart. I love that you're asking this question. And, and, and I think the thing with the, the everything that you just talked about, what they're missing is I think of being adopted like being burned. It's like my skin was actually, it feels like it was burned. 
And the people who aren't adopted or relinquished don't understand the level of pain and extra care that we need. So you can clinically talk about it, but to viscerally understand what it means to be in pain at some level all the time, that's, there was a book, it's called um, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And it's one of my favorite books. And I taught it in college. And uh, the kids didn't have to read the whole book, but everyone in the class finished it. And for someone to read a book, write a book about the Vietnam War that, number one, I would read because that's not something I normally want to read about, and a, a room full of college kids can't stop reading, it is a real feat. And he, he made it work. Um, first of all, you're not sure whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And what his point is is that you can't tell a true war story because people who haven't been to war actually don't want to hear it. And that it's so the situations are so out of the norm that it, it defies language. And I think that that the things they carried is a war version of adoption. And so for on my on uh, my book is on sale on Amazon and I have a couple of one stars. And what's interesting is as soon as I get a one star, I post about it on Facebook because the, the, the reviews are usually pretty long and they're very scathing and they point out all the reasons why I didn't write in the first place, you know, that I'm, I'm complaining. Um, I blame everything on adoption there. Um, uh, so I post them on Facebook to show, look at like, this is people say these things. This is why adoptees stay quiet. And, and the last one, and, and I believe that the people who post them, because other people do research and you can find actually who makes the comments, uh-huh. are adoptive parents. And, and so they're the ones that are, that are giving me one stars, while adoptive people and other people are giving me five. Interesting. And, yeah. And so I think that if... If I were a magic genie and I could do anything in the adoption industry, I know that a lot of people would end adoption, but that's not my thing because I think it's nice for babies to have homes. Um, but but I'm I'm not for selling babies or stealing babies. But mm-hmm. but um, I I would I would want for as hard as it is, I would want parents who adopt to understand. On a, on a visceral level, what it means to have lost your home planet. And I think that it would be very hard for them to do that because you don't want to know that your child's in pain and you want to hope, you want to think that everything can start from a, a new place the moment that the baby arrives. Yes. Uh, but, but I think it's like the, 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 if if adoptive parents could understand the level of pain, everything would would shift. Completely agree with you. It, it once again, age is a big big factor. You know, I I was fortunate enough to have just phenomenal parents and family, but I was also twelve years old. Things right. things could have been differently. Right. Um, they you know they didn't adopt before. They had a kid of their own, um, and they're very well educated. They knew when to have kids and were well prepared but at the same time I was 12 I was six years older than what's considered to be old 
in international adoption. So there were a lot of things that could have come from my end that just no study could predict. You know, there's there are studies that I have read uh, recently that say that uh, you know a person who comes from another country may experience things like just like you said, trauma, post trauma um, effects, uh, and just all these difficulties of learning the language, coping with their past, making friends, and just really adapting to this world. Um, I do think that it's a good portion of why I was able to persevere through a lot of that was just the drive, was just believing in myself, believing in the process. And that's the same exact thing that I recommend to anyone else who asks me this question is, how did you make it? I said, I just believed in myself. I said that no matter how difficult a situation is, that there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. And all of that is due to, you know, my experience. I've seen in my life and based on my perspective, I've seen worst of the worst. And there was always a light. Even though in my case, it took nine or 12 years to find that light. But knowing that there's there is a light in existence somewhere, I think that can drive a person throughout this healing process. And that's the miracle of you, that you were able to see that light. And I think that's why you're in this position of teacher or you were given a unique set of skills because a lot of people are so deep in the mud that they can't see the light and that all they can see feel is pain. And what I learned from writing the book and then finally I – you know, when I was in so much pain growing up, my mom would say, well, why don't you get a job helping other people? You know, maybe that will help distract you. And at the time, that was just really insulting because I thought, well, I'm in so much pain. How, I need help. Uh-huh. <laughs> and but she was saying she was coming from a good place, but I wasn't prepared to go to help other people because I, it was like I was a half-baked loaf of bread. And she was asking <laughs> damage of myself right and I was like oh man I'm not done cooking <laughs> he told me for a while but but now the idea of helping other people that that for people really to thrive so you asked me earlier like how, how to help other people have the courage to tell their stories and I think it's it's <clears throat> we have lived uh, a life that had trauma in it. So to go back, if you're in a place to go back and relive that trauma and write it down is not that fun. So it means that your present moment isn't any different than your past because you're sitting there living in your past. So what you just said as you were speaking, my body felt great hope because you were talking about light. So I think a really helpful way to approach writing a story is to is to start at the end and not the end where it is now, but the end of where you would like it to be. Uh-huh. And to write down, where's the light, right? Like, if I had written down, I mean, I am exactly where I wanted to be. I want. I wrote this book so I could be the spokesperson for adopted people or for people who feel that their story isn't worth telling. And I want to be. I want to be the midwife to that story. Uh-huh. That that is a completely joyful life for me. And so that's my light. Right. So in order to get there, 
I had to tell my own story because I had to have the credibility to say, look at, I have these skills. If I can do it, you can do it. So, so for when I wrote my story, that, that was it. That was in my mind. I was writing that story so I could get here. It wasn't, I was writing that story so I could stay in the past and feel really miserable. So I had one foot in the past, but I had one foot firmly in the present, which is what kept my brain from getting, like, even though I wrote about hard things, I didn't write about every hard thing because I can do myself and my brain a service. I don't have to relive stuff that really hurt if it's going to hurt me in the telling. Right? Absolutely. I, I can see my life as a movie and I can make it art. I don't have to tell you exactly. It's not my duty to tell you what happened if I don't want to, mm -hmm. right? It's my duty to create a life that is fully mine. Is as I have to be as much Anne as possible because if I am Anne, I can show up for you and and help you. I can mirror you, right? It's like mm -hmm. it, you are so yourself and you're so strong and well-spoken and that makes me stronger because you are so rooted in yourself and if adoptees are missing their own roots you find people who are rooted and and you share that energy and then you grow your own so okay. i think how to write your story is to think about well how do you want it to end a friend of mine who was actually one of the guests on this podcast his name is joshua banks had recently said a quote that i found very powerful and um relatable to what you just said. And he said that in order for him to be a hundred percent, you have to be a hundred percent. I love that. And, and that's, that, and it was just so perfect like, because you look at something like that and you look at the world and you know, you, you try and understand why are certain people still to this state pursuing and doing things that don't align with themselves. And I, I think there are plenty of reasons, but I think that in order for you to become who you want to be, the people around you have to be a hundred percent committed yeah, to are, becoming your time with. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But but you know what? So if you're if you are adopted by people, no matter how wonderful they are, but if they have their own wounds that they haven't dealt with because they needed to adopt someone and 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 actually you don't have this sort of DNA sympathy between you that you, for me, it was like, I grew up playing tennis, but I had to alter my game because no one ever hit it back. Right. You know? And so then I, because I was slight, because I was dealing with adoption, not knowing it, you know, I would, I would, the friends that I chose didn't fully mirror me because I wasn't fully me. And it wasn't until I met Pam where I felt like, oh my God, I am completely mirrored by this person. And now I can play the game of tennis that is Anne. And uh -huh. it's and I can just keep playing better and better. And this is why we're doing those retreats. Because it's like, oh my gosh, we're just gonna have a tennis camp. Right? <laughs> we're gonna play their best game possible because they're gonna be with people who understand the game. I love that you bring a lot of joy and optimism and light into this and which brings me into the next segue. How do you fuel your passion? What keeps you going every day now that you know what you want to do in life? Oh, talking to you. So just talking to people. Like now I'm obsessed with you, right? So I'm like, now how can I help Oleg? How can I help? <laughs> okay, he's got he's he's got this whole vision 
because my brain, I like, I, I like to spider web. I love connecting. And so I want to, I think, who can I connect him to? How can we get him money so that he can, you know, and that, that to me is fuel. So in the mornings I go out, I take pictures, I listen to podcasts so I can feed my brain. And I, I, I think about how do I, how best can I connect people and myself and ideas to make the world a better place for, for the child that I was when I was adopted. Because adoption can be a great, great gift. But right now it's a great gift with a solid punch to the gut. Mm-hmm. And I want to, so I feel really strongly about like, okay, let's figure out how to stop the punch so that these, these kids and these people, and again, adopted people, they're so much like the rest of the world. And that's why I think the rest of the world doesn't really understand the drama of being adopted because, or relinquished because, you know, they're like, well, I feel the same way, but they don't. You know, I, I heard recently, I was listening to Paul Sunderland's video on YouTube on um, adoption and addiction, which is one of the greatest documents on adoption on the planet, I think. And he said that they they did this uh, in his therapy practice, I think it was, that there's a test they give people to see, to give them a number for their level of depression. And let's say, like, let's say 23 means that you're severely depressed and you need some really significant help. Like adoptees routinely came in and scored around 30. But oh, wow. He, but he wouldn't even notice that they were d- depressed. And, and, and I think that this adopted people are so used to dealing with such heavy feelings and still having – either they go out and they're maniacs and they set fires and they you know do really subversive things or, or they just try to put a good face on – and um, to 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 do the best they can while inside they're just dying. And I totally forgot what I was talking about and why I'm even here. <laughs> not, a, not a problem. <laughs> oh, joy. <laughs> yeah, how do I find – yeah, and I, 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 I want that to change, right? I want – like for you, I just want to see how do we make the road as clear as possible for you so that – so that the world can be because you're clearly you're on a mission mm-hmm. right isn't that exciting absolutely i think another thing that i was able to define and you may think in a similar way is that you know adoption shouldn't be any different than any other person's life we on a daily basis decide to adopt other people into our lives whether that's systems, whether that's the way they speak, the way they dress, who they are as a being. So when I explain to people what it is that we're trying to solve on a bigger scale, it truly does come down to that. It's accepting people for who they are. It's yeah. not categorizing them and saying just because you are adopted or you know a criminal or whatever other category that you can think of, I can't accept you for you as a being and i think that's a very important part and it will be a, you know uphill climb as always whenever you're trying to change something to change that to break that mentality and to really just allow people to understand that you're doing this on a daily basis 
and that there's really no reason to create a separate category for those that are in you know in a way labeled with that um name yeah that uh, you know i was talking to um a man the other day and he said that his 12 year old son had just discovered girls and that his son asked the dad how do you speak to a girl and the dad asked knew what girl it was and um she's from another country i, I don't know what country and the man the man said to his son when she talks to you say to her i don't understand you i speak english and my stomach i i i actually i i i i got so sick because that was the man thought it was funny and he thought it was a form of teasing uh-huh. and I said, that was the worst piece of advice you could have given your son. And I said, that's so cruel. And he said, but it worked. She likes him. And I said, but you are... But the image it creates afterwards for a 12-year-old to take that in literally. And, you know, not to interrupt, but I'm sure that his dad or the kid may not even know or fully hasn't processed what he said. And the effect of it could show up. 10 years down the road or tomorrow. Exactly. And so, and this is where the adoptions issue, adoption issues become universal because it is a deep respect for others, for the differences of others. And, and to, to actually, to not only honor the differences, but to actually revere them and, and to see them as, as wonderful and to realize that you can't, there are things you just can't joke. It's not funny. <laughs> As I'm laughing. Well, but you you are right. Some things could be taken literally that shouldn't have been, and it's up to the person who's delivering the message to understand that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's being aware of language, you know. So if it's a if I walk up to you and you say, "Oh, this is my mom," and I say. Uh, oh, you don't look alike, and you say, "Well, I'm adopted," and I say, "Oh, so it's not your real mom." Mm-hmm. That that's a, that's a um, so. There's two things we can do: we can educate the people who speak, but we can also educate the people who are being spoken to, right? So that I don't have such a a reaction to feel like, "Oh my gosh, she's not my real mom. I don't have a real family." I'm I'm I'm, I'm going off on. I feel like I'm I'm going on tangents right now. Do you want to help me? No, it's it? good. No, this is perfect. Okay. Um, this is this is adoption too, right? And this is what happens when people try to write about adoption, and it can feel really out of control because it starts to spread out and it affects everything. And so, one way I was able to write about adoption or, or my feelings or my life was to let it be a big mess, and and to not try to make it makes sense. So I let, I let myself write in chunks. I let myself um, not try to tell a story like everyone else would tell a story, which is a, an overarching arc from A to B. You know, my life started here and it ended at this point. Because, you know, as you and I are talking to other people, it might look like we're jumping, you know, from stone to stone kind uh-huh. of. And, and it might be even translated as ADD or ADHD. Uh-huh. When this is the adoptee brain, it's a fragmented thing, and we're trying to understand the world with a brain that's fragmented. So the beautiful thing is to honor the fragments 
and to understand this is how we think and this is our our story is in pieces. Yeah, and this is who who you are, and this is how you should be accepted and treated. Exactly. Yeah. Final thought: In a situation where odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Um. So when I came, so normally in in my in the past when things were against me, I I I a lot of the times I I went into defeat and I I didn't do my best. But when things really got bad, like there's been three times in my life where I was pretty much at rock bottom, and that's where I had huge leaps of growth. And and what I found was. Asking people for help, telling telling them who I am, what I'm doing, and why I need the help. Just being honest, and just what you said about the light, feeling that there is a reason to go on because there is a higher purpose for me to be on this planet. I just need to find what it is. If you don't know what it is already, and believe that it's there. That life isn't just about going to work and making money so that you can go buy a nice cake. Mm-hmm. Right, finding out, learning to revel in your own glory, and then to find out how are you supposed to share that with others. The the miracle for me when I wrote my book, I really thought writing it would kill me, so I didn't. I wasn't that anxious about the future because I figured I wouldn't be alive anyway. And so I, I I wrote it, and then I was emotionally a wreck, so I couldn't really think straight. I didn't have any money. Um, I didn't know where I was going to live. I mean, things were, were really pretty dire, and um, community saved me. Someone gave me a place to live. Someone gave me a house. Um, my friends, just these people, people on Facebook, people I don't even know have my back. And I, the reason they have my back is because I think that I, I live in my heart. And and instead of apologizing for myself and saying, you know, I'm such a mess and I'm in so much trouble. It, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, here I am. This is what I need, and um, I, I still can't believe how much the universe had my back. And now I'm strong again. Um, but I, I really, I think people like you and me, the people that have been tested really hard, and and your tests have been um, harder than mine the rewards are exponential because we see that what we can survive and, um, and, and, um, the, I'm, I'm willing to work really hard. At first I was shocked. I thought I would write my book and then I guess I thought maybe I'll make a million dollars and my life will be easy. (laughs) But, but what happened was I, I paid a lot of money to write my book Mm -hmm. and, and then my life was really hard, and I felt gypped. I felt like, why do I have to work so hard? And and then I realized, you know what? This is life. Like it's not. And, and this is a funny part of adoption. I think I have a funny, like, uh, thinking that I actually deserve just to have things handed to me. And I had to come to terms with that belief. And I had to see, you know what? You you if you want something, you have to work your butt off. To and get it, it. Was, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it was great for me to have no money for a while. I mean, I used to walk to the grocery store with quarters. And so now when I go to the store and I can buy whatever I want, I, I'm really grateful, but I am also much more careful with my money because I earned it. You know, and so, so much of it is, is, is finding the value in things in yourself and in the things in your life and, and believing that you deserve them. Um, and then sharing them with others. I feel like I skipped a few steps to that. No, it's such a great point that you make. I think that, you know, when you're doing something like this, like you had an ideal image of what the society portrays after you publish a book, is that, right. you know, the next step is, all right, how do I make a million dollars? But at the right. same time, you've already made that million. Right. You've already right. made that mil million through healing through encouraging other people to pursue and go after what they want. And, you know, those are things that are not tangible. You don't know. You don't know whether no, the things you said and the impact they'll have tomorrow. And who knows? Maybe in a month, in a week, in a year, a next millionaire will be, will be born from your story. Yeah, and it's not that and – and the irony is, is that it's not the money, right? Because if you don't have self-worth, you don't know the value of it. Exactly. But now that I have it, I see that, oh, my gosh, it doesn't even – because I told my story and because I, I took the time to listen to myself and I took the time to write it down, that's where the self-worth was born. And that means I'm going to treat myself with more care. I'm not going to date people who really I don't even like. I'm not going to spend money on things I don't really want. I'm not going to do things that I don't want to do that don't feed me because of the self-worth. But when you don't have self-worth, it feels like it's not something that you can have. And that's why I want people to write their stories because I think it's born for many, you know, and you know, it can be, it can come from singing or any, any, any kind, it doesn't have to be, writing but anything that makes you feel like you created something that you feel represents your yourself is that's where the worth comes from and then everything else that money society tells us that money is important but exactly. that's so that we spend more but it's self-worth is i'd rather live in a tent and eat eat, eat pebbles <laughs> and have self if they were edible yes yeah, if they were edible, if they were made of chocolate with vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> but I've lived in a big house and I had a fancy car, but I didn't have any self-worth. And so, you know, I was eating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've noticed this to be a common pattern um, amongst a lot of the other people that I spoke with outside of this podcast is that, you know, there are some people that have made it, that have made fortunes, um, money, cars, houses yeah. and everything, and they've lost it all. And yeah. when I asked him, I said, so I'm having, I'm having a hard time understanding this. You've had all this and then you lost it. What happened? And it's the same exact answer tweaked a little bit from time to time. But what you just said is perfect example. It's self-worth. It's understanding what you really need, who you are trying to become. And, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's, it is easy. It truly is easy to fall back to what I call the norm what's given to you and live that life some people do it for a year some people do it their whole life and it's it's 
it's it is hard. It is hard to really go after what you want in life. You know, because like going back to the one of the very first points you made during this interview, there's no manual. There's no manual that you could have purchased that said this is how Anne is going to write her book. This is these are the people she needs to speak with. These are the locations she needs to be at. This is the time she needs to dedicate. There was no manual for that. You create the manual every single day of how you want to live your life and who you want to be. And I think once people start to recognize that, their life truly does become easier. And that's where I think people mean by the statement that once you are pursuing the things you love, your life becomes easier. Yes, and having people who have done it before you. So having you as a mentor, because you need a mentor or a teacher, right? So, so that people can see. You know what changed everything for me is that I started thinking in terms of temperature. Because I was wondering why I'm given, it's like I was born under a lucky star and I just get handed things and then I give them away. You know, it's like you give me something nice, I'm pretty sure I'm going to sell it. You know, and and so I was thinking, why do I do that? And I realized that, let's say the outside world, what's a really pleasant temperature, like 72? Mm-hmm. So let's or let's say 80. Like 80 is nice. So let's say that the outside world, 80 is an ideal temperature where you feel really comfortable and at ease. As an adopted person, I am a different temperature inside. I'm at like 60. So what happens is I can enjoy 80, but pretty soon I need it to get to 62 because that's where I am inside. You know, it's like when you put a fish in a fish tank and first you put it in a little plastic bag so that the the waters can um, get to the same temperature before you free the fish. I realize I am constantly trying to change the temperature of my outside world so it will match the agitated temperature inside. So then what I had to start focusing on was, okay, how can I raise the temperature in my body, right? How can I calm it down, make it, make it less um, agitated? And so that's when I started doing meditation, being just aware, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been, it's, it sounds silly, but I've been hearing about, I've done yoga for almost 20 years and I've heard about mantras you know, my whole adult life, like I'm a good person and blah, blah, blah. But when I say those things, they just go in my head and they don't do anything. But if I am paying attention to the temperature inside my body, and if I say every day there is more love in my life, if I say that inside my body, and if I say that in my guts where so much of the trauma is stored, it raises that my body relaxes. I am reprogramming my nervous system. And I have found that my body now pretty much matches the temperature to the outside. So I don't hang out with people. I used to hang out with people who had mental illness, right? Because like that was agitating. And so that would agitate my outside world. So my outside world could match my inside world. But I don't do that anymore. I don't overspend. Because if I spend, that would cause agitation in my outside world, right? Mm-hmm. How could I poison my outside world so it matched my inside world? So now I can't affect my outside world. 
that. Well, yes, I can. I can make choices. So I, I, I look at both, and I'm trying to get them both to a nice, pleasant, I'm going to say 72 degrees because I don't love 80. <laughs> <laughs> what, good... temperature, what temperature do you want to be? Um, 80 degrees is not bad. 90 yeah, is a little bit too hot. 70 yeah. is a little bit too cold. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, can do all 80, I think, is a good uh, good temperature to be at. And, you know, I th once again, exactly. you, you bring up a good point with temperatures. I think um, I've never thought about it this way before, but when you buy things, you know, when you buy new things, like you buy the shiniest car in the lot, right. it evokes a certain type of temperature right or right. when you buy something cheap and you know it's cheap right. it evokes a certain type of temperature and i never that's a very good point you bring that up because you know it's one thing to process it within the moment and give it reason but it's a whole other ball game to step back and reflect upon it and say okay does this actually bring me to you know, equilibrium within myself and allow me to feel the way that I want to feel. Yeah, that's why I had to change it. The temperature thing worked for me because, I mean, remember, we're working with the limbic brain, which doesn't have language. So I'm trying to deal with trauma for which I don't have language. And so if I can feel it viscerally, right, like, okay, let's so it's when you're born, if you were held by your mother, the, the temperatures would have matched. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I'm I got a weighted blanket and I'm obsessed with it. Like it makes me drool just to think about it because that feeling is so good when the blanket is on me. Mm -hmm. it, the outside world is matching my inside world. And so I don't have to think in terms of words when I think of temperature. I can think in terms of feeling. So I'm getting back in touch with my body which is when you have trauma as a child, you leave your body. And so, so many adoptees have disassociation, right? Where they're living, but they're not really in their body. Yes. And what I love about the temperature is you're asked to continually check in, right? And say, okay, here I am in my body. You know, like an adoptee might cut, right? Just to be like, oh my God, am I even here? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Anne, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It truly has been a pleasure to learn from you and your experience learning about the book writing process. I think all of those are all valuable things for all of us to take away from this. And, you know, you also shared a lot on the process of how to deal with a lot of the things and put your story to work. Um, once again, I think that's a that's a skill that you know, you can't learn, just like you said, by simply acquiring money or things like that. So it it's truly has been an inspiration and very educational for me. Oh, and for me too. I think you're an amazing human being and I'm so glad that, to be in contact with you. So thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, Feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes along with featured stand-up and speak-up stories and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.